Turn in your Bibles, please, to Genesis 3. We are in the midst of a study, Genesis 1 through 11. We are now in one of the most, if not the most, important chapters in the Bible. This is the chapter that sets up the rest of the biblical explanation of redemption. Uh, What could be more important than what we are learning here in this chapter? It really contains all of it, at least in seed form. It explains so much for us. Um, As Christians, we have to know these realities to understand and interpret the world around us. Through what God reveals in Genesis 3, we gain a better understanding of the problems of sin, of relational disconnect and estrangement, of sickness, suffering, and death. You know, if someone just dropped a person into the year 2021 with no prior knowledge of humankind, you would no doubt be shocked to see how fast that person would come to realize uh, how bad off things really are. For all the ways we cover stuff up, it's pretty skin deep how much we're able to cover this. In the midst of amazing beauty, you would also see estrangement, darkness, division, deterioration, and decay. So follow as I read the results of the fall for the serpent, the woman, and the man. Of course, these results are not limited to these three individuals. They really work in a, in a format of widening application, very personal to the serpent, but does have impact on the rest of us. Um, personal to the woman, but in a wider, uh, a wider impact now. And then to the man, the widest of all impacts. We're going backwards to verse 14. We already came up to verse 15 last week. We're going backward in order to go forwards to see these three different individuals and the results of the fall for them and for us. This is God's holy word starting at verse 14 of Genesis 3. I will read to verse 21. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, the gravity and the impact of what these verses reveal is not lost upon us. But at the same time, we do need your Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination in order to fully understand what is being taught. Lord, we tend to minimize sin in our lives. We tend to think our state is better than it is. Lord, we have a thousand ways to cover up sin's true devastation, personally and really societally. Lord, be gracious to us as we peel back these layers. We can't bear the full weight of understanding this all. But may the truth 
drive us to our great refuge, who is also our only refuge, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, our Savior. I pray this in his name. Amen. If a person never read the Bible, they would still know that things do not get better on this earth. They may say otherwise and repeat that mantra over and over again, but virtually none of the evidence points to it. The contrary. Everything deteriorates. Everything decays. Entropy is all around us. At the same time, God's common grace has been amazing in its confronting the effects of this fall, this deterioration. We have better shelter than we've ever seen before on this earth. There's food for the vast majority of the inhabitants of earth. Ways to make water drinkable continue to multiply. We have medicines and medical procedures that make ancient plagues and ailments seem to disappear. Able to be managed, if not disappear, in ways that previously were never imagined. New technologies, they arrive at rapid speed. We can't even keep up with how fast it all comes. Faster than we can even adjust to what it does for mankind. At the same time, there is still the constant problem we all recognize with all these areas. Pain and suffering in the world continues. There are still sicknesses we cannot solve. There are people starving, even despite there being plenty of food to eat. Despite all the advances that I've mentioned, the average average lifespan for men and women has actually gone down in the last few years. Even with all the advances that keep coming, the reality is that entropy is all around us. Everything eventually breaks down. Take for a moment, if you will, the phenomena of genetic entropy for a very quick example, a demonstrable example, one that you can see just watching in experimentation and study. It's true that various diseases have effectively been eradicated, but a host of new ones continue to appear. Why is this so? Well, genetic entropy is the genetic degeneration of living things. Scientists describe genetic entropy as the systematic breakdown of the internal biological information systems that make life alive. Genetic entropy results from genetic mutations, which are typographical errors in the programming of life. In your cells, this is what happens. Mutations systematically erode the information that encodes life's many essential functions. Genetic entropy is most easily understood on a person-by-person level, just who you are as a person and your physiology. In our bodies, there are roughly three new mutations in every cell division. Again, we can see this by experimentation. It's not a theory. It's something we could see work itself out. Our cells become more mutant and more divergent from each other every day. So, don't get me wrong. Take your vitamins. Drink your apple cider vinegar. Limit your carbs. Walk your 10,000 steps daily. Do your CrossFit. Flip those tires. Take medicines or vaccines or whatever you want to do to try to mitigate. But these things only slow down the entropy we're talking about, if they even do that at times. They won't stop it altogether. By the time we are old, each of our cells has accumulated tens of thousands of mutations. Every one of you here is a mutant. Mutant accumulation is the primary reason we grow old and die. Scientists call this genetic entropy. The Bible simply describes this as the process of wasting away outwardly. There are no exceptions. 
Eventually, our bodies cannot fight off the myriad of bacteria and viruses and ailments that are out there circulating, and they are circulating at an elevated rate every day too, and we eventually will die physically. Now, beyond our personal experience of entropy, there's really another entropy that's interesting to study as well, and it has been studied exhaustively. It's ignored a lot, especially by evolutionists, but it's the entropy of the human race. Because mutations arise in all of our cells, including our reproductive cells, we pass many of our new mutations to our children. This is why the age uh, span doesn't seem to get any bigger than it ever was. Sometimes it goes back for certain epochs. So mutations continually and continuously accumulate in the population, with each generation being more mutant than the last. So not only do we undergo genetic degeneration personally, we are also undergoing this genetic degeneration as a population. This is essentially evolution going the wrong way, and it's demonstrable, unlike the other kind. This is what prompts, ultimately, the Apostle Paul to say in Romans, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? What's the reason for this decline and decay that I'm speaking of? What's the cause for this downward trend in humankind? But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. There's no relief if we stay under the first Adam. To escape this ultimate sentence, which leads to eternal death, we must come under the second Adam. And Genesis 3 is the foundation for that truth. We can't appreciate that reality till we grasp the depth to the degree we could take it. And to take it, I mean, I can only hand, handle one profession of faith like we did today. In this passage, to the degree we could take this foundation, this is what springs us to recognize God's great and glorious remedy. This is what Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So we do not lose heart, Paul says, and it would be easy to lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Genesis 3 gives us the hard truth about why there is sin, suffering, sickness, and death in the world. But even in this passage, with all that truth being displayed and revealed, hard news, still we have God's grace woven throughout. Despite the radically diminished capacity in the inevitable decline of humankind as a result of sin, God's grace is interwoven and points to a glorious new creation. I want you to see with me in the passage, there are three sentences. I'm using that term because the scholars will use it. I think you could see that they are the outflow of their new fallen condition. Men and women were not created identically the same. There are features that are different between us. 
This is part of what we see, especially in the marriage relationship with the wife being the counterpart to the husband. So the fall's impact has some general application for sure. We'll see this. But there's some specific applications too to the parties involved that extend then beyond them. So let's look at these three. First, we see a curse on Satan, Satan's doom. Then the results of sin for the woman in particular. And again, that has some wide application there too. Everyone feels that pain that the woman feels. And then the results of sin for the man, for Adam, and for mankind in its widest application. The sentences start narrow with Satan, and they widen out to the final sentence that is explained concerning the man. First, let's look at verse 14 and 15 briefly, because we've already studied this last week, but let's see this in the context of the three pronouncements that God makes. And here we have the doom of Satan for his part in the fall of man, the entrance of sin into mankind, into the universe created by God. The Lord God said to the serpent, of course, the serpent being possessed, if you will, by Satan, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The permanent posture now of the serpent here, the snake, if you will, will remind everyone always of the ultimate end of Satan. It's Satan's degradation pictured in this animal slithering around eating dirt. And eating dirt is descriptive of of those who are defeated, those who are low and can't get up. And this is a picture of what awaits Satan in this part of the curse. But there's much more to the curse. The heavier portion is his end in verse 15. I will come between you and the woman now. You've done this thing. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, your seed, and her offspring, her seed. We recognize this to be uh, two seeds that exist. And the ultimate seed of the woman would come in the person of Christ. We see this unfold in Scripture. He shall bruise your head. And a, a bruise to the head is synonymous with a mortal wound. He will wound you mortally because it's to your head. You will bruise his heel. That's the cross. So we have this picture of Satan's end to be defeated by Christ. And we also have a bit of a picture of how things will unfold in the scriptural story as well. There will be the seed of Satan who line up against the seed of the woman, the people of God versus the people of Satan. There's just these two real separations. Now, I recognize, we all know, that we have a thousand and one different identities that we claim, all various levels, first level, second level, third level, what kind of, how you identify yourself. That's a big talking point in our day. It's always been to some degree. What tribe are you part of? What group are you part of? Now, these things may have some merit somewhere, but they're really distractions against an ultimate reality that there are two seeds here, and they unfold in Scripture. To have all these other tribal considerations detracts us or takes away the urgency of recognizing, am I under the first Adam who has succumbed to Satan? Am I at the seed of Satan? Or am I under the second Adam? The ultimate question one should always be analyzing. This is the way in which it's pointed to Satan, but it definitely extends out from there. Now, let's spend more time at verses 16 through 19, where we see pain for people as a result of their fallen state now, their fallen condition. The woman specifically is addressed, and the man, Adam, is specifically addressed. Let's start with the text addressing the woman. You'll notice there are two main areas where sin impacts the woman, womankind. Childbearing, the pain there, then also relational pain with 
their husband. The sentence, you can see how it impacts um, the woman's two key functions as being a counterpart, as a childbearer, mother, and also the wife, the helper. Pain and childbearing, a skewed relationship with her husband. These are two ways that result from the fall and are demonstrable. We can appreciate this and we recognize this. We see it in the first couple and we recognize it since. First, there's this increased pain and childbearing. You'll notice what it says. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. I know this is a very sensitive topic. I want to tread just very lightly to say we recognize the irony here in Genesis 1, 28, when the first couple has said, be fruitful and multiply, that exact word. Then we come to this passage, that your pain will multiply. The word multiply now applied to the pain in the process of carrying a child. And I know everybody here has been touched by this. So again, I won't say more than to say that this is a, a result of general sin. It's not your sin, it's sin. It's the fact that we deal with these kinds of heaviness and these kinds of miseries, this one being so integral, so integral to womanhood especially. John Gill put it this way when capturing the whole of it, and he wrote a couple centuries ago, a compounding of all the griefs and sorrows, disorders and pains, from the time of conception or pregnancy until the birth, such as nausea, a loathing of food, dizziness, pains in the head and the teeth, faintings and swoonings, danger of miscarriage, and many other distresses. Now, after all of this, there's still more that flows from the effects of the fall. There will also be this relational pain with her husband. You'll see in verse 16, the second part, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. The ESV does good service here in properly translating this. Some of the older versions don't put the contrary portion in. There's good reason for this. Your desire shall be contrary for your husband, to your husband but he shall rule over you. Now, we should not forget the ultimate reason for the fall of mankind was not Eve's sin as such. It was Adam's lack of leadership and protection of Eve. He is the one that is given the blame for what happened ultimately. He was there when she was deceived, and he said nothing, apparently. He did not give her God's word correctly, perhaps. It made her not recognize the error of what Satan said. And when she repeated, she repeated it wrong. Or, He didn't correct it when she did say it. He didn't extract the serpent as soon as the serpent started talking. He failed to lead in that moment. He failed her as as her husband. So now after sin's entrance, her tendency is to try and rise over him and take his place as leader. This is what is meant by saying, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. You'll oppose him now. You'll try to be over him. You'll try to move him. You'll try to dominate him. The desire here refers to an impulse toward usurping the man's ordained role. Doesn't trust him. And there's good reason you can imagine Eve didn't trust him. But this flows from the fall, both from the fallen nature of the man and his poor leadership, and now the woman's inability to, in her natural state, be able to follow that leadership that God has ordained. It would be more difficult to translate this as the ESV has done if it were not for an identical word construction just 15 or so verses later. In other words, in the Hebrew language, the exact same syntax is what they call it, the placement of the words and the word usage. It occurs just like it with a different topic in chapter 4. The verse we're looking at says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, yet he will rule over you. In Genesis 4-7, when 
God is talking to Cain, who is, sin is starting to work in him to do an evil thing. And God says to Cain, it, sin's desire, is for you, but you must rule over it. Identical word. So it's describing a desire that's sinful or out of line towards the husband, and this will cause, and in the case of Cain, he had to rule over it. He had to fight off this. Well, the same thing will have to happen. It'll cause the man to respond. The problem is the man is sinful, so we know what that will mean. It won't be a a gentle response to that trying to usurp. It could be tyrannical. It could be harsh. It It could be violent even. It could be sinful in itself. This is what we see happen so often and recognize this imbalance now that happens in the marital relationship. And some of this comes from this drive that the woman will now have post-fall to not trust the husband's leadership, to not trust God's ordaining of that leadership. You could see how this unfolds. And only through the gospel can men and women start to see victory over their respective sinful inclinations, whatever they may be, and taste a bit of the harmonious contentment that existed before paradise was lost. James Boyce does a good job explaining this in his comments. He says, as a result of the fall, no man longer can lead easily. He must struggle to be the leader that God appointed him to be. Sin has corrupted both the willing submission of the wife and the loving headship of the husband. The rule of love founded in paradise is replaced by struggle, tyranny, and domination. Now, words are spoken to the man. Seen words to the to Satan, then to the woman, and they definitely reverberate through humanity. But now it gets even wider with the results of the fall upon Adam. You see the ground itself affected by the fall of man. You see the man's ability to provide and sustain life. You see it affected drastically because of sin, and you see ultimately that physical death will come. These three areas. Let's look at the passage, verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, uh, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Man will no longer have the capacity to properly manage the earth, and the earth will suffer for it. There's some discrepancy over the earth itself having an intrinsic curse attached to it, or if the earth is cursed because man is cursed and diminished and unable to to take care of the resources of earth. Whatever the case, the result is the same. The earth suffers from mismanagement, from exploitation. Um, Some of it is not used when it should be used, and it overgrows, and it becomes a hassle and a problem. In fact, you see what it says as it unfolds further. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. There's now an adversarial relationship with the resources that God created for man to manage them, but man is incapacitated to the degree he can't manage it well, and so it becomes a struggle to gain from it what should have been so natural in the first place. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You won't be able to keep up with it, which will mess up a lot of stuff. It'll mess up your ability to grow stuff. It'll mess up your ability to go explore areas because you can't get through the jungle to get there because... It's hidden, and you're unable now to have the impact that you once were supposed to have in tending and keeping the earth. So therefore, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. This picture of our inability to, to manage nature any longer, it'll be so hard now and difficult. We'll have anxiety because we'll work and we'll work and we'll work, but we'll never really know if we'll have enough. 
uh, will we'll struggle with this. And there will be places and times on earth where we won't have enough. And people will struggle and suffer with this. Um, man's inability now to manage as he was supposed to manage is real across the board. You know, one way that you could see this so carefully demonstrated, that combo of, yes, created in the image of God with a beautiful resource system he's given us, but our inability to manage. There are hundreds of ships off the shore of California. You know the reason why? They're loaded with stuff. There, are not, there is not room, it hasn't been managed, that there be room to put the empty containers the empty containers have laws. They can only be stacked too high. So the laws of our management, just to give one example, are so poor that we've caused this issue where we can't get goods and services here. It's all there. shows you the plenty we have in the world, but it can't be unloaded because there's no room to move the empty containers and get trucks to move and the logistics of it and all that happens. It's so hard to manage. It seems so simple as we sit here, but it's very difficult now. And that's the story of our attempt to manage things. For all the good things we've seen, we fail in so many ways. We're incapacitated. We're diminished. And we'll have to work hard until we die. And we'll work until we're wore out. Ecclesiastes 1. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. I've only seen pictures of my grandfather, my, my father's father. He grew up in Sicily and was in the sulfur mines at age 14. When he finally came over to America in 18, he was greeted with the good life of the coal mines of Pennsylvania. And that's where he worked for 50 years of his life until the only picture I have of him is sipping wine, can't stand straight, and two fingers dangling because they've been broken so many times. He died at 72. My grandmother at 48. Such is life for most people, most laborers on earth. This is their end. This is the labor of what they have to do to toil. This is from the fall. Work itself is a gift, but our diminished capacity to do the work without toil, that's gone from the fall. Kidner addresses the thorns and the thistles. Yes, they're literal, but they're also eloquent signs, as he says, of nature untamed and encroaching. We see the parts of Adam's judgment. The ground is self-affected. Life coming from the sweat of his brow, pain and weariness will typify his labors, but also I want us all to recognize this wide-sweeping application of the fall. Verse 19, For out of it you were taken, talking about the ground. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. When God created Adam from the dust, we had this glorious picture of from dust to glory, in this idea, in the ideal that it would go on to glory. But now, you'll return to dust. That's death. That's ultimately the picture of death. Everything is decaying, digressing, and going downhill. You, for a while, as a young person, have the illusion that you're getting stronger, and there's some ways in which you might say that. Not collectively, because there's many who are younger are not that fortunate to be that healthy. But you have that sense until you're 30, 40, whatever it may be, give or take for some. But you recognize pretty soon, you, and it's too late to fully appreciate when you were healthy, what that's like, how that impacts You know, there's a generic connection here between the entrance of sin into the world and the advent of death, decay, and disease. In a real sense, all disease and decay are related to this, to the fall itself. Genesis 1 through 3, death is introduced as one of the consequences of sin. We see it here. And with that, some of the primary means which death occurs, namely disease. Misery and death are because of the pervasiveness and the universality of sin. The reason for the existence of pain and sorrow and ailments, sickness, and even death, 
is because of the effect of sin on the universe. Whenever we see sickness, death, and struggling and strife, the response from every Christian ought to be to lament, to lament the effects of the fall. As Jesus weeped over Jerusalem, we should weep over suffering and misery because we know where it comes from. We know how radical it is. We know no person can solve it. No person in the first Adam could have any hope to even address it well, not in any long-term lasting way. This is the curse of sin. Yes, one day the world will be made new and there won't be sickness at all. But as long as we live in this cursed world at this time, corrupted by sin, there will be this sickness. Now, to summarize the impact of the various sentences thus far, the doom of Satan meant an ongoing conflict between the two seeds that would claim many casualties. The sentence to the woman would mean pain in childbirth and pain in her relationship with her husband. The marital relationship is the most impacting of all the relationships there are, and the whole of society is impacted by this strain and this struggle. The sentence for the man would mean an adversarial relationship with the earth that he was called to tend and keep. It won't cooperate, and he won't have the capacity necessary to do the job that God has called him to do. This means very tough labor and toil to survive tough leadership weight, a sense of inability to tend and to keep, struggle with provision, insecurity about the future. He will bear a weight of leadership that is under strain as well. Finally, we see here that we are dying. The inability to stop that process is an after effect of the fall. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I have the great joy at the weddings that I am able to officiate to close it by saying, What God has brought together, let no man tear asunder. But I also have the task to say when we commit a body to the grave, and we commit this body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, because that's true. But you know what else? Woven through all this hard news is the very grace of God, the undeserved favor he shows to people who really only deserve his wrath because of Christ. Already forecasted in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. The promise that he will send the seed, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, right there in Genesis 3.15. So despite all this news, we can look to the Savior. God promises the Savior. And we believe in the Savior. We, by faith, lay hold of that promise, recognizing it's all true about who we are by nature. Enemies of God under the first Adam. But we, we want to be under the second Adam, the seed you promised God in Genesis 3.15. But there's more. Verse 20 and verse 21 reveals more of God's grace. Look at verse 20. After all this bad news, what would you respond? If you're the man, you just heard all this. You bear the weight of it. What would be your response? Well, look at verse 20. The man, in his response to this terrible news, these sentences, the man called his wife's name Eve, which means living, because she was the mother of all living. What what, what is this response? What is the nature of this response? I would suggest to you, he gives the woman the name life because she will bear the hope of reversal from what they got everyone into. She will bear the seed. You are life, the mother of all living. So it's up to what comes forth from you to save us from this predicament we're in. People sometimes ask, were Adam and Eve believers? Did they trust? I think we have a profession of faith here. I think he's saying, 
I hear the sentence. There's nothing we could do to get out of it. We can't say sorry now. We can't go back and undo it. So Eve, you're Eve, the, woman, the, the mother of the living, and the seed will come from you according to what God just said. I believe in God's promise. Eve, life will come from you. This ultimate promise of redemption was heard by Adam as he names his wife in verse 20. You know, what about Eve? Well, in chapter 4, when she has her first child, Cain, now we know Cain, but she doesn't know the specifics of when the seed will come. In her response, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This may be the seed. She believes the seed that God promises will undo this. God's grace is there even in the pit. And we see the kind and gracious and merciful act of God to give them clothing. Scholars, some scholars will try to make this into a picture of the sacrifice of Christ. I don't see that in the text here, and it's not referred to as such elsewhere. I think what we just need to see on the face level is what it's, it's mercy. It's mercy to them who have bore under the weight of the sentence. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Their relationship together with each other in the world had radically changed because of the fall. That would not change until new creation. So in the meantime, clothing was necessary for all that it provided for them. This is the gracious, mitigating grace of God, the way that the fall is in full effect, but God gives ways to see this mitigated. At some level, it's merciful. And you see him do this by his common grace, we may call it, very specifically now by clothing them in the situation that they had found themselves. Sentencing Satan meant undoing his evil work with a second Adam to represent us. Sentencing the woman maintained the great calling and blessing of motherhood still. Sentencing the man guaranteed that there would still be food to eat even though it would be difficult. There's still grace in all of these things. The image of God and his commission still present in Adam's naming Eve. Not all purpose had been lost. God still had this mission for them, but they needed this covering to move forward, and he gives it. Despite not deserving it, God places mankind in shelter and in safety, a merciful act on the part of God, despite man not deserving it. Of course, as Christ comes, there's many responses to these areas of sentencing that we see in the fall. The sentences themselves reflect fallen nature, life after the fall, uniquely fitted for their pre-fall roles. We see them unfold in the life, the life of men and the life of women. Arthur Pink does a good job summarizing some of these things, so I rephrase some of his wording to describe it to you this way. Our physical sickness is a picture of our spiritual reality apart from Christ. Without Christ, we are described as being dead in Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sins. And desperately sick, Jeremiah 17, the heart is wicked and deceitful. We are to hate and fight our sin as much as we hate and fight our sickness. Pink says, if then the fall is a historical fact and the only adequate explanation of human history, what follows? Well, first, we know that man is a fallen creature. Second, that mankind, men and women, are sinners. Third, we need salvation from this sin that we cannot provide. This then, Genesis 3, this then is the foundation for gospel appeal. We have to know this truth 
to be drawn to the gospel. If this is true, the first Adam, in the story we're told here, the history we're given, which explains a whole lot, if this is true, where else would you go except to the second Adam? What choice do you have, really? It's the only place to go is to Christ. By nature, man is alienated from God, under condemnation, lost. What then is the remedy? The answer is we need a new creation. We cannot find salvation in this creation. This is exactly why Paul, after preaching the gospel at Corinth, telling them over and over by way of epistle that this is true, this message I've given, culminating in his second letter to the Corinthians and to us, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. That's what we need. In Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's not the cultivation of the old nature that is needed or even able to be accomplished. That's ruined by the fall. But the reception of an entirely new nature, which is begotten by the Holy Spirit, ye must be born again. Anything short of this is worthless and useless. I began by quoting Paul in reacting to genetic entropy, which is personally and corporately applied, societally applied. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But I didn't read the next verse, and I will now. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, this is a heavy message that we read in Genesis 3, one that is not accented. Certainly the world, the world at large, people still repeat the delusional lie that man is basically good or can figure out, if they just, we just put our collective heads together, we'll just figure out how to solve our problems. Lord, give us eyes to see how ridiculous that is, how impossible to demonstrate that in any facet of civilization. Lord, instead, open up the eyes of us here first seated to recognize this truth and lay hold of the gospel. And then me, from this place and from these ambassadors, more and more come to know the truth of what it means to be in the second Adam. I pray this for your glory to be seen on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's together respond to what we have heard as, and also prepare for the Lord's Supper.